Hey folks, Andy Patton here. The Zags are the unanimous number one team in the country, taking back their rightful place at the top of the standings, followed closely by Tommy Lloyd's Arizona Wildcats. Today is Mailbag Monday, so lots of thoughts on this team's rest of the season schedule and their future, not just this year, but going forward next season. All right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton. Here to take you through a very close to an end of the next season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, where the game starts. I also want to thank all of you who make this podcast your first listen of the day and those of you who have checked the show out on YouTube. If you have not done so yet, just go to youtube.com, search Locked On Zags. Hit that subscribe button, trying to get to 500 subscribers before the final game of the Gonzaga basketball season, which we hope will, of course, be the national championship game. Again, a great opportunity to follow the show on YouTube if you have not done it already. Today is Mailbag Monday. Uh, Super excited. Love Mailbag Monday. Favorite episode of the week. If you are somebody who has yet to participate in Mailbag Monday or is not sure how to do so, very simple. You can just tweet at me at ScoreZagScore or... At Locked On Zags, whenever you are thinking of a question, I will write it up. I will put it in my Mailbag Monday note sheet, and I will get it answered for that show. You can also email me at andypatton013 at gmail.com. That's a great way to ask multiple questions, to ask questions, and also submit hot takes for Andy Locks, which comes out on Thursdays, uh, or just have a nice conversation with me if you're interested in doing so. So a couple different ways to get involved. Got a lot of questions to get through today. This first question comes from the old Heffalump on Twitter who says, seems like a tough week offensively. Was it just that both Pepperdine and Santa Clara didn't want to get embarrassed again, or is there something Gonzaga isn't doing? Seems to my eye that there's too much settling for threes and not great looks. Yeah, the Zags were a little flat last week. I think that's kind of the the very simplified way to describe what happened last week. They were a little flat. They were flat in the second half against Pepperdine specifically, uh, kind of flat a little bit throughout the game against Santa Clara. Santa Clara went on enough runs to obviously put that team away and secure the victory, but was a bit of a lackluster performance, obviously, which is disappointing when you're in the kennel on senior night. Uh, you know, that that's a tough team. Pepperdine, not as much of a tough team, a very motivated team with a lot of freshmen, a lot of young guys who Gonzaga hadn't seen a lot of before. I think they were able to kind of give some different looks in the second half. But but frankly, you know, you mentioned the the outside shooting and settling for, for those shots, which I have mentioned as something that I think Gonzaga needs to be cautious of, of doing. They know that they can win these games, even if they're not hitting from three, but it doesn't mean you should just settle for outside shots. Like they're an elite shooting team around the rim. There's no reason to not feed the paint, whether it's Timmy, whether it's Chet, whether it's Anton Watson, kind of get those guys' looks under the basket as opposed to just settling for those outside shots. Uh, I think the biggest concern in these games was more on the defensive end. You know, we had those back-to-back fouling a three-point shooter possessions against Pepperdine, which is just inexcusably bad defense. We had uh, some lapses in defense against Santa Clara as well. 
That's more my concern. I think Gonzaga will tighten up offensively before they get into the NCAA tournament and we'll kind of figure out the best ways to utilize their strength on that end of the floor. But defensively, this is a team that's been very, very good all year. But if they go through lapses on that, and they can't just rely on Chet to block everything around the rim. They need to be able to play better defensively on the perimeter. And that was something that we didn't see great uh, these last couple of games, but hopefully will be tightened up over the next couple of games and into the WCC. And then, of course, the NCAA tournament. Next question, similar vein. This one comes from Dad Risk on Twitter, who says, Did Gonzaga peak too early? No, I don't think so. I think th- this period of the season, this late WCC season, WCC season, excuse me, kind of lull is is really typical. In fact, it happened last year. Last year, Gonzaga got off to a scorching hot start, of course, with the wins over Kansas and Iowa early in the season and then kind of coasted and obviously did not lose any games, but they had a lull period in the WCC play. They had a, they, they needed a pretty epic comeback from Jalen Suggs to beat BYU, and they had some kind of ugly games late in the regular season slate. Then, of course, they turned it on, breezed through the NCAA tournament, beat UCLA in an epic game, and then went to the national championship game where they lost to Baylor. You look at the 16-17 team that also went to the national championship game. They had a lull period as well. They ended up losing to BYU on senior night, their only loss of the season until the national championship game against North Carolina. But even before that, they had some sloppy games in conference play before the loss to BYU. I think that this is kind of just a general lull period for a lot of college basketball teams, not just Gonzaga, even though Gonzaga's conference is not as difficult as the Big Ten or the Big 12 or any of those conferences. It's still a slog to get through every single team. You're playing every team a second time now. They're more prepared for what you're going to give. These teams, especially this week, are fighting for their NCAA tournament lives. They're going to play really tough, really aggressively. And Gonzaga's a little bit tired, a little bit worn down. But we've seen in years past, they may go through a little bit of a lull right now, but they almost always turn it back around in March. And I expect that to be the case here. Next question. This one comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, I took a time machine back to pre-television days and listened to the game on the radio. Why wasn't this game televised? Comparing the games, the BYU and St. Mary's game was far less entertaining. Yeah, so this game was on TV uh, in Washington and Oregon. Uh, at least I, I know that it was on TV in Oregon because that's where I live. And I was able to see it on Root Sports. Uh, Gonzaga's television deals have been a bit rough this year, quite frankly. Pacific Northwest sports have had a really rough year with television deals. Uh, the, the Fubo situation is kind of the only way to get Root Sports if you don't have cable. And Root Sports was showing all the Seattle Kraken games, all the Portland Trailblazers games. And a lot of the Gonzaga games. It's been a very frustrating season for fans of teams in the Pacific Northwest. Gonzaga has gotten pretty accustomed to getting the majority of their games uh, on Root Sports in the Pacific Northwest, but also on other channels in California and around the country, at least if it's not going to be on ESPN or CBS. Uh, This game was just a missed one. I'm not exactly sure why. They may not have predicted that a Gonzaga-Santa Clara game would be particularly noteworthy. Uh, Obviously, Santa Clara has exceeded expectations this year, but... Certainly, I can understand why they put a BYU-St. Mary's game as a priority because we didn't think that BYU would collapse the way that they have. Uh, It's difficult for these stations to know exactly how to prioritize these games. However, Gonzaga should be on TV all the time. They should always be on TV across the United States. It's when they're the number one team in the country, when you know they're going to be worst case, a top five team in the country, uh, basically every single season, there's not really any excuse to not find a way to get them on TV, even in out of market areas. Next question comes from Larry via Gmail. 
Larry says, now that the regular season is sewed up again, how do you think few will handle playing time in these last two games? Will you rest the starters more or rely on them to protect the number one seed to win at all costs? Yeah, I don't think the Zags have, have ever really rested guys in the final games of the season. Uh, yes, they have the WCC title you know, on lock. They're going to be the number one seed in the WCC tournament. But these are two really good teams. These are two opportunities to pick up quad one victories against St. Mary's and San Francisco, two really, really good squads. I, Mark Few is so competitive. I, I just I cannot imagine them not going and doing everything that they can to win these games. I would not hate if guys like Andrew Nempard and Drew Timmy and even Rasir Bolton got a little bit more of a break and maybe didn't play over 32, 35 minutes in these games because they, we want them to be fully healthy going into the NCAA tournament. That's what I think would be nice to see them do, but it is not what Mark Few has done historically. And this is two of the biggest conference games they have played in the last 10 years or so like these two teams like they don't play a ranked St. Mary's team all that often St. Mary's number 23 in the polls this week that's a ranked game happening on Saturday in Moraga there is no way that Marfew is not going to do every possible thing he can to win that game and this next question the final one of the first segment comes from Christian he says Arizona had a very competitive game with Oregon according to Ken Palm Oregon is 73rd and Santa Clara is 76th in order to win six straight tournament games and the national championship, a team is going to have to win one or two like this. This will be the Zags' next four games. It will have a tournament feel and likely involves USF, St. Mary's, and two similar matchups in the WCC tournament. How do you see this playing out? Is there a viable scenario where the Zags see Santa Clara again? The two teams on the rise in the WCC seem to be St. Mary's and Santa Clara. Yeah, Santa Clara is definitely peaking around the right time. Obviously did not pull off the victory against the Zags. On Saturday, but played a pretty good game. They have played very well throughout conference play this season. I would not be shocked if Gonzaga finds a way to run into Santa Clara. They are capable of beating every team in the WCC, except maybe Gonzaga. I don't know if they have the horses to really beat the Zags unless things go really poorly for Gonzaga, but they clearly can beat BYU, clearly can beat St. Mary's, clearly can beat San Francisco. Uh, I think it's a pretty reasonable chance to expect Gonzaga to face, obviously, St. Mary's and San Francisco in the regular season, and then potentially put both those teams again in the WCC tournament. But again, I wouldn't be shocked if Santa Clara is there. I expect the Zags to win out. They're just so talented. They're so deep top to bottom on the roster. They have so many different ways to beat you offensively and defensively. Yes, they're in a little bit of a lull, but they haven't, you know, they've, they've won all these games by over 10 points. Like they're still taking care of business. I, I think Mark Few is going to get them into shape enough to, to win these two games on the road and carry that momentum into winning the WCC tournament as well. All right, we got more listener submitted questions coming your way in the second segment. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Bet Online. There might be less football being played, but betonline.net has way more stuff to bet on this playoff season. From scores, totals, and player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline is the number one spot for all things NFL betting in 2022. And it's not just football. BetOnline.net's basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC odds coverage is the best in the business. From sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games, BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all of your favorite sports and play your favorite games. Andy Patton here to introduce our new sponsor, Homefield. Homefield is a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, offering incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs. Homefield has kicked off Big New Saturday Season 3, where they launch a new school on their site every Saturday for eight straight weeks. Gonzaga was Week 2. 
Homefield dug through the archives and history of Gonzaga to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for, for the school, and they launched the Gonzaga collection on January 29th. The Zags collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including t-shirts, hoodies, and crewnecks, all vintage. Guys, the designs on this stuff are amazing. We've got Teddy Gonzaga, Captain Zag, True Blue and White, Defend the Kennel t-shirts. You've seen them all over Twitter if you've been paying attention there. Incredible designs. Go get your stuff from Homefield today. You, you order it now. You get it delivered in time for March. You can wear it for the national championship game. New customers can get 15% off their first purchase from Homefield using code LOCKEDONZAGS at checkout at homefieldapparel.com. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, still answering listener-submitted questions for Mailbag Monday. This first question of this segment comes from Larry. Larry says, Salas only played eight minutes when they could have used his D on Pipes and or Williams. Why? This is obviously the referencing the Santa Clara game on Saturday. Yeah, so Few doesn't, he, he really doesn't trust his younger guys in close games very often. This has been... What I would consider somewhat of a flaw in his coaching style, particularly with the development in in the sense that they have a lot more really talented young freshmen, like freshmen who are capable of playing right away. For the majority of Gonzaga's history as recruiting, the players they brought in needed to develop in not insignificant roles before they could really play. They've obviously had players who came in as true freshmen and played significant minutes right away. Not just Jalen Suggs and Chet Holmgren, but, you know, guys like Kevin Pangos who had a big role right away. Uh, you know, going back, Blake Stepp and Adam Morrison even had a big role as a freshman. Like, they, they've had that in the past, but but few generally relies a lot more on his veteran guys. In this case, in this, in this game against Santa Clara, Rasir Bolton and Andrew Nempard both had really good games. They played really well. Now, Salas is a much better player defensively than either of those two guys. And in a game where P.J. Pipes was killing the Zags and Jalen Williams, one of the most talented players, the players that face in its play, I can understand the desire to have Salas play more minutes and help shut those guys down. I thought eight minutes was surprisingly low for Salas. I'm not shocked because it's Mark Few. And whenever a game gets a little close, he's far more likely to rely on his veteran guys over his freshmen. I don't think that that strategy is inherently bad all of the time, but I think he overdoes it sometimes. I think a a fair criticism of Mark Few is being unwilling to trust his younger players in situations where they could probably thrive and flourish and develop as players. Obviously, the overall development at Gonzaga has been extremely strong. Players develop extraordinarily well in this program. There are thousands (laughs) of examples. Everybody in the NBA right now, basically. Rui Hachimura, Joel Ayayi, Killian Tilly, all these guys took these really big leaps during their collegiate career. So I'm not one to, to criticize too much on the actual development that Gonzaga does with their players, but I do think there are more opportunities to get these guys in in situations where they can really thrive and learn how to utilize their skills to help the team win in games that they're not that they're not winning by a significant amount. And this was an opportunity that in my mind was missed where Salas could have played 15 minutes in this game. Yeah, you would have had to take some time away from Nemhard or Bolton or Hickman uh, or even Strother potentially. And I can understand why Few was maybe hesitant to do that. But I think this was an opportunity, potentially a missed opportunity for Salas to get some valuable minutes. Next question comes from HoopsFanAB on Twitter, who says, given his length and skills, are you surprised the Zags don't post Strother up more? 
Uh, no, because I don't see that that being a, a role that fits on this team. Drew Timmy, Chet Holmgren, Anton Watson are always in the game. Usually two of them, almost always two of them are in the game at the same time. And they're such elite low post scores. All three of them are really highly efficient low post scorers. So when Strother's in the game, using him in that role, getting him the basketball down low is just... It's just a less efficient way to try to score the basketball. He is a better, he's better utilized as a driver to the basket, uh, a cutter to the basket, you know, utilizing that floater he has, which is very, very good. Or of course, just as a pure standstill outside shooter, which he's, he's very, very good at as well. So it's just, I think it's a skill he could probably develop. He could probably do well at. And I think if Gonzaga were to have a lineups where he was playing the four more, which could happen next year, if Chet Holmgren, Andrew, Timmy leave, I think there's a situation where Anton Watson plays a lot of minutes at the five. Julian Strother, if he returns, obviously, plays a lot of minutes at the four in that situation. I think there could be opportunities for Strother to be posting up. But we also don't know how great he is as a low post scorer. Again, he's he's got a great floater. He's good at finishing around the rim. But there's a difference between cutting to the basket and finishing around the rim and actually catching the ball on the block and making a post move. I don't know what his skill looks like there. My guess is he can probably do it. But if he's not going to be 65 to 68% at that, which is really hard to do, then there's not really a, a need to utilize him that way because Chet, Anton, and Drew are all over 60 ish percent at doing that so just give it to the guys who are better at it uh, but again I think it's something that could be a part of, of Strother's game in the future but I'm not shocked that it's not a part of his game right now next question comes from s underscore dewitt 11 on twitter he says is is drew timmy still in the running for national player of the year I guess it depends on your definition of running. Uh, is he a top 10 candidate yeah I think probably is he a top five candidate probably not would be my guess. I think realistically, the odds of Drew Timmy actually winning the National Player of the Year are extremely low because I think that the award is going to be won by either Johnny Davis, star guard at Wisconsin, or Oscar Shubway from Kentucky. Both those guys are really, really good, putting up really big numbers. Uh, obviously, Davis at Wisconsin, Shubway, excuse me, is from Kentucky. Uh, Kofi Coburn from Illinois is in the mix as well. Keegan Murray from Iowa. There's a lot of names. EJ Liddell from Ohio State. There's a lot of players in that mix. And Drew Timmy's having a great year, and I think he deserves to be a part of the conversation. But at this point, I think... It would be quite surprising if he were to take home that award. Next question comes from Larry. Larry says, I'm thinking so goes Nembhard, so goes the Zags. He can absolutely take over the pace and control of the game. Sure, he needs complimentary pieces, which can come from any of the other starters. But don't you think his steadiness and leadership can and will carry them to a Final Four? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've said this on this podcast before. Just like Larry said, so goes Nembhard, so goes the Zags. You look at Gonzaga's biggest struggle games this season. You look at the Alabama game. You look at the Tarleton State game. You look at the Merrimack game. Uh, Andrew Nembhard struggled in those games. And I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to blame him for all of Gonzaga's struggles. That's not a fair way to look at it. Certainly, Gonzaga had other problems in those games that cost them uh, the the victories, at least in the Alabama game, uh, and cost them <laughs> a lot of stress in the in the Tarleton State game as well. But when Nemhard is playing well, this team is really hard to beat. And even when he's playing well and not shooting well, like he had the game against Pepperdine, he shot very poorly. In that game. And Gonzaga didn't have a great game against Pepperdine, but it wasn't because Andrew Nempard shot poorly. He played phenomenal offensively. He distributed the ball extremely well. Nine assists in the first half. He's a good defensive player. Not elite, but good defensive player. A bit of a streaky outside shooter, but he is a masterclass in the pick and roll. The best pick and roll point guard in Gonzaga history. 
which is a pretty bold statement considering their starting point guard in the 1980s, John Stockton, was the best pick-and-roll point guard in NBA history. But Nembhard, the way he utilizes the pick-and-roll in the modern, modern game right now is so elite. His floor vision is incredible. Uh, he's be- better at attacking the rim, finishing around the rim. Uh, when he is on his game, when he's playing like he did against UCLA, when he's playing at his best, this team is virtually unstoppable. And I do think that if this team makes a deep run into the Final Four of the National Championship game, it will be because Andrew Nembhard had a solid run in the tournament. All right, final question of the segment comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, is one of the reasons a triple-double is so hard for Zags players is because there's so much talent on the roster? Andrew Nemhard was halfway there at halftime against Santa Clara, but obviously the win is what matters most. Fans seem enamored with this, myself included. Yeah, honestly, the, the reason that a triple-double is hard in the college game is because of the construct of a college game. NBA games are 48 minutes long. College games are 40 minutes long. Uh, there is way less scoring in college games. Obviously, there's a 30-second shot clock as opposed to a 24-second shot clock. Players are less talented in terms of scoring the basketball. Three-point line is a little bit closer, which uh, makes spacing a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, obviously, less scoring doesn't just mean less scoring, but it also means there's less rebounds to be grabbed and less assists to be to be dished out. It's just harder. It's just harder to get triple-doubles in college hoops. Uh, you know, BYU, uh, Kyle Collinsworth at BYU got, I think, seven in a season, which was was remarkable and like broke BYU's record and was, I believe, a college record. Meanwhile, Russell Westbrook can get like 75 in an NBA season. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I'm not comparing those two players straight across the board, even with Westbrook struggling. You know, he, he's, he's a better basketball player than Kyle Collinsworth, but it's, it's a lot to do with just the college game in general. Specifically with the Zags, them having a lot of talent is not necessarily a detriment. You need talented players around you in order to get 10 assists. Uh, and you need talented players around you in order to get a lot of open looks, which is how you get your 10-plus points. But I think for the Zags, it's just Mark Few doesn't care about triple-doubles. He's not going to play players unnecessarily in order to get them, uh, and the players are more focused on winning, so it's just, a, it's just a difficult ask. It's hard to do in college sports, I think, is kind of the general summary of triple-doubles. I don't think that we've, we've seen the last triple-double in Gonzaga history. Joel's not the only one to ever do it, but there's a reason it took 20 years uh, of Mark Few's tenure for us to see one, and, and it, might, it might not necessarily happen right away again. All right, two segments down, one more to go, answering even more listener-submitted questions for Mailbag Monday. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you all about today's sponsor, Built Bar. This is the time of the year that I've pretty much given up on all my New Year's resolutions, but not this year. I'm sticking to my resolution to eat right thanks to Built Bar. It almost feels like it's not really a resolution because I actually enjoy eating them. Have you tried the puffs? If you haven't, you're missing out on one of Built Bar's best-tasting bars. Puffs are the first ever protein-infused marshmallow. They're fluffy, they're marshmallowy, they're not just a protein bar, they're a treat. And they're covered in 100% real chocolate. In fact, all Built Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate. A typical candy bar can be anywhere from two to 300 calories. Most Built Bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. They have mint brownie, coconut, and coconut almond, and... New for this month, white chocolate cookies and cream. They are all delicious and new flavors are coming out all of the time. Go to Built.com, use promo code LOCKED15, and you will get 15% off your next order at Built Bar. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at Built.com. All right, segment three. Still Andy Patton, still locked on Zach, switching away from talking about 
from the players on Gonzaga's roster and, of course, the last weekend of games against Santa Clara and Pepperdine. Instead, we're going to look at some kind of future things for this Gonzaga roster. This first question for this segment comes from Brian via Gmail. Brian says, We all want Anton Watson to make an incredibly successful leap from his junior year to senior year next season with the hopes of him eventually landing on an NBA roster. If you had to choose, what most helps his chances of getting there? Drew Timmy as his teammate next year or Timmy not coming back? So, Brian, I I wrote out an answer to this question, and I erased it and wrote out another answer to this question. It's honestly, it's it's tough to know. There are pros and cons to both sides. Uh, my gut says Timmy not coming back. And the, the reason for that is because Anton Watson has proven this year that he's a very capable low-post scorer and can, can get a lot of buckets by posting up. With Drew Timmy on the roster, he's going to do less of that. No Drew Timmy next year. No Chet Holmgren next year. Gonzaga will find more big men either on the transfer market uh, or a late recruit in the class. They'll obviously have Ben Gregg, Caden Perry, Braden Huff as well. But ultimately, Anton Watson is going to be relied upon significantly in the offense next year if the Zags don't have Drew Timmy or Chet Holmgren. That means Watson gets more rebounds. That means Watson gets more points. His overall numbers and productivity are higher. If Watson averages 14, 15 points, six or seven rebounds next year, that's going to put him on NBA radars just because the the, the numbers, the production is there. As much as there's a, there's a lot more to NBA scouting than just raw data and numbers, but it is a factor. However, Anton Watson's skill set in the NBA, uh, offensively at least, is not going to be his low post scoring. He's not going to be a low post back to the basket scorer in the NBA. He needs to prove that he can be a a perimeter threat. And thus far, he has not proven that. I don't think that there's really a situation where Watson comes back next year and bombs a whole bunch of threes, regardless of whether Drew Timmy is on the roster or not. But if Timmy is on the roster and Watson has proven he's more capable of shooting from the outside or at least handling the ball, we could see Gonzaga try to run their high-low offense with Watson at the top of the key, Timmy down low. That would afford Watson more opportunities to show off his ball handling skills, his straight line drives to the basket, and potentially stepping out and knocking on some outside shots. That skill set is more valuable to him becoming an NBA player than him just putting up more raw data. So it's a tough, there's, there's arguments for both sides. There's, there's arguments on both sides. Watson won't have as much offensive production statistically if Drew Timmy comes back, but the type of production he has could be more in line with what his role would look like in the NBA. Next question. This one comes from AD206 on Twitter who says, it seems to be a given that Bolton doesn't come back next year, is it? It appears that he would have another year of eligibility left and he isn't in NBA draft conversations. Yeah, most grad transfers don't really don't really get involved in NBA draft conversations. If they are uh, graduating and transferring to another school, they probably aren't going to be NBA players because they would have gone to the NBA by then. Uh, I think Bolton is the kind of guy who could do could squeak his way onto an NBA roster uh, through the G League. He's talented enough, especially the way he's been shooting the basketball this year. Uh, But to answer the question, I do think it's very likely that he leaves. And I'll talk about that more in the next question. But he could come back. And there was an indication in in an article written by Jim Meehan at the Spokesman Review that uh, all about Rasir Bolton that indicated that, yeah, he might consider coming back. Like, it's not out of the question that he runs it back with this Gonzaga team next year. 
would be interesting to see how that would shake out with the rest of the guard rotation, depending on what the two freshmen do, depending on Dominic Harris's health, depending on whether they get Anthony Black or any other high-level guards in the class of 2022. But obviously, there's no situation where Rasir Bolton coming back is a bad thing. It would be quite good to have a player of his skill set back on the roster next year if he chooses to do so. Next question comes from John via Gmail. John says, I saw in a tweet a day or so ago that the only player you are 100% confident in losing next year is Chet Holmgren. So let's play the game that I give you a player and you tell us how confident you are that he will not be on the team next year. I know we've talked about it in the past, but this is a fluid situation. So how do you feel about these players on February 21st? So he gave me a list of six players. I'm going to go through them. I'm going to tell you what percentage I think it is likely that they are gone. Number one, Andrew Nembhard. I think there's a 94, is what I wrote down, 94% chance that Andrew Nembhard is gone. Again, fluid situations. Um, I'm kind of just trying to have fun with these percentages and not take them super seriously because I think it's kind of silly to take it super seriously, but I do want to talk about each of these guys. Nembhard, very likely gone. I would be very, very surprising to me if he comes back. He doesn't want to be a super senior. He's a guy who's had his eye on the NBA for a long time. That's not to say that he wouldn't be super valuable if he came back or anything like that. I just don't think that that's his vision. I think he's planning to leave after this year. Number two, Rasir Bolton, uh, 85% gone is what I put there. I already kind of talked about his uh, his path and his the potential for him to, to return in that article at, at uh, the Spokesman Review, but I think more than likely he's not going to come back either. Drew Timmy, number three, 59% gone. I've still kind of stuck with the 60-40 that... 60% he's not going to return, 40% he is going to return. Nothing has really swayed me from changing how I feel about that. Uh, a strong NCAA tournament makes it more likely he leaves, uh, but it's really up to him. The skills that he needs to show in the NBA are still not skills that he has fully showed. He's not showing up on a ton of draft boards. So if he wanted to come back, run it back for another year, make some money through NIL deals, uh, become the most hated player in college basketball, he, he could still absolutely do that. Number four, Julian Strother, 48% gone. Basically, I'm 50-50 on Julian. It really depends how he plays in the NCAA tournament, uh, how he does in workouts. He's 6'7", big-bodied guy, good rebounder, good outside shooter, the kind of skill set that NBA scouts love. They also love youth. He's young. That's the kind of stuff that could pull him away, even if he didn't have this overwhelmingly productive season. He's been very, very good, but I think that he's... He, his body size and everything like that is enough of a reason for him to potentially be an NBA prospect, regardless of actual performance on the court. Number five, Nolan Hickman, 44% that he's leaving. I think it's more likely that he stays. Uh, for a while, it looked more likely that he was going to leave. He was on a lot of draft boards. He was a really highly productive backup for Nembhard and Bolton. Lately, he's, I don't want to say he's struggled. His role has just been reduced. They're running Nempart out there a lot. He's played a lot of minutes. Bolton's minutes have increased. And we haven't seen Hickman be quite as... He's been a little bit more tentative with the basketball. He hasn't shot the ball extremely well. He just he hasn't popped enough on the court to really, I think, be on a lot of draft boards anymore. He could come out and have I mean, one great game in the NCAA tournament where he scores 15 points off the bench is enough for him to be back in that conversation. So this is a very fluid situation. But right now I'm leaning towards him probably sticking around for another year at Gonzaga. And then number six, Hunter Salas. I got Hunter Salas at 20%. Leaving, I, I just we talked about him a little bit earlier in the show. I, he hasn't played a ton of minutes. When he does play, he doesn't get the ball in his hands all that often. He's more of a backdoor cutter, uh, a great, great defensive player, good offensive player, but not a primary ball handler, not a facilitator, not an outside shooter. I think those are all skills that he does possess and could 
will have a very big role doing that stuff next season, assuming he comes back. But right now, because we haven't seen a lot of it this year, I think it's less likely that he goes to the NBA because I just don't think there's enough data out there for teams to feel super confident drafting him very early. And he'd be better served to come back, have a bigger role on this offense, kick ass next year, and then turn himself into a first round pick after his sophomore year. Final question of the show. This one comes from that crazy Uncle Fester on Twitter. He says, where does the WCC go from here? He says, weird question, but hear me out. How much better can the league get? Outside of Gonzaga and St. Mary's, it feels like a springboard for capable D1 coaches or where Power 5 coaches go to settle for mediocrity. No disrespect intended. We have some great players and coaches, but feel like there's a ceiling on this league and can't help but feel like we're maybe a few feet from bumping up against it. So I hear what you're saying. And I understand the argument and specifically the comments about the coaching, but I don't think that this ceiling is, is hard and fast. The ceiling is movable. Previously, for all of my time following Gonzaga and most of your time following Gonzaga basketball, for anybody listening to this, Gonzaga would have, or excuse me, the WCC would have never been considered a potential three-bid league. They're probably going to be a three-bid lead this year. They might drop down to two. The four-bid dream is is not quite dead, but it's pretty close to dead for the WCC. But the fact of the matter is, for the majority of the season, it was a legitimate conversation that the, that the WCC could get four teams in the NCAA tournament. That has never happened before. To me, that doesn't tell me that the ceiling is being approached. It tells me that the ceiling could continue to grow. You're absolutely right that keeping legitimate coaches is a huge part of this conversation. If Todd Golden... If, if So Andy Enfield, the coach at USC, is rumored to take a job at Maryland this offseason. I have no idea if he's going to do that. If he does and USC's head coaching job opens up, USC, in my mind, absolutely should call Todd Golden at USF. I hope they don't, but they should. And if they do, it's going to be really hard for a coach like Todd Golden to turn that job down. Would I blame him? No, not necessarily. But that's what happened with Kyle Smith, good young coach. And the WCC took the job at Washington State. Obviously, we've seen it a handful of other times with other really high-level coaches in this conference. I don't think that the ceiling is about to—we're about to hit the ceiling and the conference is not going to get any better. Obviously, losing BYU does not help. Uh, I think the transfer portal can be helpful and hurtful. Obviously, there are high-level players who could potentially leave, go to Pac-12 schools, go to other schools— uh, and not suffer the transfer, the sit-out penalty. That could be bad news if a player like Jalen Williams decided he wanted to transfer. Uh, and and yeah, and that sucks. But also, these guys can, these teams are, have a better likelihood of getting high-level players. You know, a, a guy who is a sixth man at a Pac-12 school who feels like, hey, I could go play at Santa Clara or go play at San Diego, and score 18 points per game. I think you're more likely to potentially see some of that if these coaches are are really good at helping convince these kids to come to these campuses. So. I, I think that I think that because college basketball has changed so much, the landscape is so different. It's hard to know where exactly the ceiling is for the WCC. But right now, they're in a very good spot. They got a lot of good coaches. They got a lot of good teams. Santa Clara is a tournament caliber team that didn't have a good start to the season, so they're not in that conversation. But they could be in that conversation next year. Every other team that's has been in that conversation this year should be in that conversation again next year. You got teams like Portland and San Diego who are improving. You got a Pepperdine team that was very good last year. They reset this year, but they could be good again. I don't think that we're talking about a future where the WCC is a consistent five six bid league that would be very very crazy to me but i don't think it's crazy to think that this conversation we're having this year about three or four teams being in the NCAA tournament is the kind of conversation i think that could continue to happen for the next couple of years 
All right, that is going to do it for me today. we got a fun guest coming on Tuesday's show and, of course, more fun coming up the rest of the week as the Zags take on the Dons and the Gales in their final two regular season games of the season. All coverage right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Thank you again to those of you who have made this show your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your second listen of the day, the Locked On Bets podcast. Locked On Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your sports gambling needs. Locked On Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. All right, thank you all for listening and go Zags.